PIM Podcasts. The contents and views expressed by individuals in this podcast are not necessarily those of the companies for which they work. Hi everybody, we're here today, Cook and Berkshire at CIM headquarters with our special guest, Morag Kudover-Jones, who is editor of Catalyst. Hello Morag. Hello Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. The latest issue is fantastic. It's sort of uh, looking ahead, uh, one thing stood out with the Festival Feast article, mm. looking ahead to a, a time when the skies uh, aren't grey, it's not cold. Um, and the days aren't uh, seemingly four hours long. So we're looking forward to that. People are planning their festivals, their summers at the moment. But you worry that there might be a bit of festival fatigue. Well, Glastonbury seems to have sold out with its usual enormous pace. But aside from some of the big marquee names, I think, yes, we are starting to see peak festival. And I think that can only be best categorised by what we saw in the news with the festival Fire Pyre, that notorious influencer festival uh, run by a number of high-profile, or rather fronted by a number of high-profile American Instagram celebrities. This is the one that was on the net, there was a Netflix mega hit. The the documentary was a mega hit. The festival wasn't a mega hit for reasons you're about to explain, but uh, it was a mega hit. It It was a marketing piece of marketing genius that wasn't backed up by the reality, wasn't it? Indeed. I think we should we should probably point out that the, the Netflix documentary came after the festival fire <laughs> pyre disaster. Um, such was the crash and burn of this festival that Netflix invested in creating a documentary to flesh out exactly what went wrong. Um, and essentially what went wrong was, you know, you failed to plan, you planned to fail. Mm. Um, planning the festival clearly looked easy. Yeah. And it very much is not so. So it didn't have any of the component parts that you need for a festival, like accommodation, basic human needs. They'd sort of gone straight in with the brands and the entertainment. Yeah. Um, that's that's the whipped cream. You, mm. you need the, the apple pie or the hot chocolate to put that whipped cream on. And sadly, there was nothing but fresh air in that whipped cream. Yeah. Um, but most festivals, uh, particularly long-standing ones, have worked out their formula. Yeah. They've got great bands, Entertainment for a range of ages, accommodation of varying types, depending on your level of comfort with discomfort, um, from glamping to the most basic one-man pop-up tent. And it works quite well, or at least it has done until now. And I think the problem is, because the formula got sussed, ones who were willing to follow through on that formula then made the festival formulaic. And so now we have a festival calendar year-round, filled with same old, same old. Mm. You have the same bands doing the same round of festivals, the same tents, the same helter-skelters, the same candy floss um, stalls, and also the same brands. Yeah. You have the gin brands turning up with the flower crowns. You have the beer brands turning up with the outsized uh, deck chair, which everyone must, of course, take their picture in and put on Instagram straight away. So it's a double whammy. You've got a saturation of the market mm-hmm. is one... You- talked about a packed calendar but also there's no there's no differentiation you think or there is some but not enough differentiation there's there's not enough there's not enough i mean you could park yourself i won't name names but you could park yourself in a field in one festival and you could easily be in one of 10 others yeah with the same people in fact you'll probably find from your facebook feed you are literally with the same people from your town or from your children's school um and brands are starting to wake up to this and going 
I would align my brand with a festival because it was a bit of an out there thing to do. It was a different environment for my brand to be seen, whether it's food, whether it's entertainment, whether it's equipment. Um, a festival I went to had a huge presence with um, Renault cars okay. because they took a climbing wall. That's not something necessarily I would have associated that particular food festival with Renault cars, but it was a family audience. They had a climbing wall, which was manna from heaven for the parents because it gave the kids something to do. And so, yes, no doubt people went away feeling some positive vibes about Renault's family SUVs, for example. Um, but then, of course, these things turn up everywhere. And so it becomes expected. Oh, who's going to bring the free entertainment this year? Yeah. It becomes expected from the audience as well. You know, they're going, oh, where can I get some free entertainment for the kids? We've got this brand providing that and this brand. They become providers of entertainment. We've stopped caring which brand it is particularly. And they're not getting the recognition for it. it, it no. become, they become invisible. They become invisible. And also, I wonder, in a way, it could possibly be damaging. Now, I don't know about you, but of the number of festivals I've gone to, it's not a cheap enterprise. And so when I go to a, a, a drinks bar, for example... I've really come away with change from a tenor for one drink. Yeah. So my perception now is that that alcohol brand, premiumized as it may be, is also a premium price. Am I willing to spend that in my yeah. day to day? No, yeah. it's not £10 a drink when you buy it from the supermarket. But now I have this perception. Yes. They may want to be seen as a bit premium, but so premium I won't buy it. I'm not sure that's what they're aiming for. So what is the trick for brands? Is it to retreat entirely or is there some other strategy? No, I think there's some strategy. I think... I think market forces for a start are going to work there and they already have worked their magic on some festivals. The the much vaunted renaissance of Woodstock, for example, went the way of the West when they couldn't get bands or brands to participate. Um, so I think we will see a falling off in some festivals to start with. I don't think they'll be able to make the money themselves. But so, sorry to clarify, you, you'll see a, a reduction in total volume of festivals. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's the first thing we're going to yeah. see. Um, and that will be... A cause of it, it, it'll be a virtuous or perhaps less virtuous circle insofar as brands and people are less willing to invest in them. There'll be fewer festivals, so therefore there'll be fewer brands and festivals for brands to participate in. But the festivals that brands are looking to now are ones looking to reach different audiences. As I said, the festivals that we see on the typical festival calendar are targeting exactly the same middle aged, middle class, middle England families. Um, they're looking for millennials. They're looking for silver surfers. They're looking for outliers. You know, we don't necessarily want to target the same people all the time. So they're looking for events to deliver those, whether those are festivals as we've come to recognise them, the three-day Fandango over a summer weekend, or whether they're a two-hour pop-up on Brick Lane or a two-hour pop-up on um, Canal Street in Manchester. Somewhere, again, there is a trend to moving out of the London metropolis bubble towards outlier areas like Leeds. We're talking, they're talking about moving the House of Lords to York, so maybe we'll yeah. have a House of Lords festival <laughs> with some brandy, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but but we're, look, we're looking for new ideas. Brands yeah. are looking for more creative approaches to where they festival and to the content of their festivals. In the um, magazine, we talk about Pop-Up Magazine, which is an ideal kind of brand to run a festival, if you think about it, because who knows and understands the entertainment and cultural reference needs of their audience better than a magazine. Mm. So they're starting a festival and you have that targeted very specifically to their readers and they have quite a niche readership as it is. Um, so brands that are looking to target a more niche readership, remember we, we long since realised that it's not spray and pray anymore. We don't need to capture every consumer with a bank account. 
it's quite possible in this overpopulated world to go for quite a niche audience and make a profit. You spoke to um, some alcohol brands and they yeah. said that they were doing exactly that, that they are going to stop the spray and pray and really target the festival that's most relevant to them. How's that working? They are. Well, I mean, for a start, not all of them have the colossal budgets that it requires to go for these huge festivals. They are expensive enterprises. Um, so one small company, which is Pickering's Gin, which I think is probably too big to be called artisanal anymore, but it's based in Edinburgh. Um, they have two large-ish sponsorships, which is of the Edinburgh Military Tattoo is one and the festival is the other. Um, and they are the only high profile things that they do because they reach tourists who come and flock to Edinburgh and they can, they can legitimately say we're the Edinburgh gin. Um, however, they also go to much smaller food festivals. They have this dinky little Japanese fire truck which, out of which they can squirt gin, not straight into people's mouths, I imagine, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's an attention grabbing thing to do. And I think that's one of the things that is a common trope across festivals, do something a little bit different. Uh, but it's the festivals they go to that's interesting. So they're not going around the spirits festivals. They're not even going around the wine or beer festivals. Ah. They're going around coffee festivals, for example, or craft beer. Things that are already appealing to niche audiences. I see. So, I mean, I like to drink coffee, but I have fairly prosaic tastes. I'm not going to go to a cold brew, hand-pressed, Guatemalan extra experience coffee place. But somebody who does go to that may well also be interested in niche beers and niche gins. Yeah. And also tellingly be willing to pay the price for them. Yes, interesting. Turning to brands associations, this fantastic piece in the magazine about the Sapur. I hope I got pronunciation right. These guys, sub-Saharan Africa, particularly in the Congos, mm -hmm. the Democratic Republic of Congo and Congo, mm -hmm. which for people who uh, don't know are two neighbouring countries with two neighbouring capital cities, Catalyst gets, does well at getting around the world. And this is a fa fascinating group of people um, for whom some brands have really managed to get a leverage in terms of association, isn't it? That's right. If we wanted to go niche, I don't think we could get more niche than the Sapper of the Congo. So the Sapper are a group of what can only be described as dandies. They love their fashion. They create their fashion. They buy their fashion. They are obsessed with fashion. Fashion is their role. Uh, for most of them, this is their job. Their job is to to flaunt. Um, but They're male, generally, is that so right? So they started out predominantly being male. Mm. However, there is now a movement to les sapeurs as right. well. So we now also have female um, fashion icons in, yeah. in the Congos. Um, but the interesting thing about these people is they're not part of the 1%. They are legitimately going without... Yeah. food, basic electricity, in some cases housing, so that they can wear JM Weston shoes, an Hermes scarf, seek out even second-hand or customised Louis Vuitton clothing, so that they can look like this absolutely immaculate dandy and part of this subculture. Um, and why would we be focusing? I mean, there's the, you can count them on... With the fingers of several hands, but not very many of them. They're yeah. not a very wide group. Um, but why would why would we be focusing on such a really tiny audience? Um, one of the interesting things about them is, as you say, they've attracted the attention of major brands. Yeah. But not the brands you'd think. Not the Vuitton and the Hermes and the JM Weston. They are not beating down their doors, should they even have a door to beat down. They are almost completely ignoring 
these the existence of this group. It's Guinness that mm. is one of the biggest brands that's t- sat up and take notice of of the sapper. And why? Because the sapper represent, I think, a great collision of brand values with what Guinness has been trying to do over the years. Now, Guinness, you could argue, is a dark, smoky Irish beer brand from a single brewery in Ireland. Uh, When it comes to giant mega conglomerates, it's now a very big beer brand, but it's it's not a huge, huge international company. It still comes from India. Do you think it's trying to consciously sort of move away from the Irishness of itself by doing this or something different? It's interesting you say that because I was going to refer back to all those very famous black and white ads that Guinness has done. Guinness, Guinness yeah. really set itself a formula for some years of having these sort of black and white um, ads which featured various aspects of what Guinness felt the brand stood for. And there were white horses dashing through oceans. There were amazing contorting dancers, I seem to recall. But there was also the Bodron. They were in a, there was a pub, and there was, there was the Irish music. And there's still that, uh, the era uh, harp yep. symbol on the brand. So I don't know if it's that they're trying to get away from the Irishness per se, but what I do think they're trying to reinforce is that they are cultural mavens that they seek out, they seek to inspire, they seek to bring experience. Drinking Guinness has always been positioned by Guinness, I feel, that they may wish to, <laughs> to, um, to deviate, but it always seems to me that, that Guinness has been about the so- very social aspect, the, the discovering the new, you're going out and you're speaking to new people, you're having new pub-like experiences, you're going and suddenly being whirled into a Cayley dance that you wouldn't have anticipated. You might have been thinking you were going to sit there with your Pinot Grigio and have a chat. But no, you, you're whirled into the world of dance. You're whirled into the, the seascape around Ireland with the, with the white horses. And I think the sapper, aligning themselves with the sapper, is another very savvy way of Guinness saying, we look beyond. You know, we are all about culture. We are all about style. But we're not about the style down the road. We, they could have picked an Irish designer. There are many of those. Mm-hmm. Um, they could have picked uh, Irish musicians. They could have picked globally renowned musicians. Um, they could have aligned themselves straight up with Vuitton, for example. But they chose to align themselves with a little known but very striking and evocative group of people. And I think that was a stroke of genius because when it came to making that film, that that ad, I don't even want to call it an ad. It was a film. Yeah. It was delving into the life of these sapeurs. You mentioned two or three luxury French brands which are favoured by the sapeur and the sapeurs. Um, what can they do? Interestingly, to date, as far as I'm aware, they have done nothing and they very much should be. And this is for why. So these guys, as I said, they are, relative to Vuitton's normal audience, a handful of people. Nor do they have the wherewithal to be one of Vuitton's most, I should stop picking on Vuitton, Hermes or Prada, Hmm. any of these people. Um, They don't have the wherewithal to become one of their most loyal and cherished customers either. Um, They may buy one piece in their entire lifetime. And by the way they cherish these pieces and hand them around, these, these pieces could get recycled quite significantly. So no, they won't be making a dent in the bottom line anytime soon. But why should these brands sit up and take notice? These are the ultimate fashion influencer. Yeah. They 
so far have not been paid to interact with the brand. They live those brands like they've never been lived before. If you're looking for authenticity, a unique approach, a unique message, we're hearing so much about disposable fashion and, to my mind, treating a piece of 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 pound designer or couture wear like disposable fashion, as some are able to do, is dreadful. But these people are really the antithesis of that. They're reusing, recycling, repurposing, um, customising. And they are all about that sustainable view of how we should be using our clothing of any kind. Hmm. So perhaps these designer brands should be drawing these people into the bosom of the enterprise, using them as their influencers, using them to demonstrate, you know, this is, you might not want to customise it in quite the way that they do, because this is a very sub-Saharan African approach to dress. It is very out there. It is very bold. Um, but there's still the ability to make more of what these pieces might say to their owners. And I think there's that whole story that these designer brands should be grabbing both hands and making more of. It's interesting, isn't it? You're, there's a theme going through the, the magazine this time about marketing in the world of people who are have a limited limited means. Mm. Um, and you talk up in a separate piece about this uh, this concept of social value. And that's an interesting story you've got there, particularly with AO.com, which is a, a, a white goods retailer. Is that right? It is indeed. It's um, it's your archetypal online white goods retailer. We automatically bring it up when the washing machine starts spewing foam all over the floor. Um, it covers a range of white goods. It covers a range of electrical items. Um, aside from being potentially competitively priced, there is not much to differentiate it, I guess, from any other electrical retailer. However, I do find the story behind this retailer very interesting. They don't talk about CSR, corporate social responsibility. What they do is not called CSR. They don't talk about it in the business, and that's not how they promote what they do. What they say they do is they work alongside, they use social value. And this is about leading how their market should behave. If you don't have a washing machine and need to use a laundrette, you'll spend on average £1,000 more a year. Goodness me, it's a huge amount. It's an enormous amount. Yeah. So you can imagine if you're already in the position where you cannot afford a fridge, and you cannot afford a washing machine, you're currently being forced into the poverty premium of spending half as much again on your food and a thousand pounds a year more on your washing. It's going to run into several thousands, you'd think, over a year or a number of thousands over a year. Or they simply can't afford to buy it at all and have to rent um, or borrow or, as we said, use other services. And it all just becomes too expensive. So. What AO.com is trying to do, and this is why it's not CSR, they're not a charity, they're not giving away machines. They are exploring ways that people can take ownership of the necessary white goods at a rational, reasonable cost. The company will make money, the people will have access to the white goods, and hopefully we should be able to help people climb out of this poverty premium. They have found a way of financing the delivery of machines through housing schemes, etc., where the renter pays, I believe it's something like two pounds a week, 
all the conditions are clear, there are no compound interest payments, they know how much they're going to pay, they know what they're going to have for that period. It's not an altruistic act, we should say. No. It's not a, it, 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 a, it helps the bottom line of AA.com, yeah. but that doesn't stop them being able to shout about it from a marketing standpoint. No, and I think, I think the importance is that it's very transparent. Finally, we should, we, I say unfinally, it's a, it was a big thing. It was your cover story, um, which is about, you called it sanity check, about mental health and particularly mental health in this industry. And um, a lot of this stems from the, the sort of angle of the piece. It's interesting is that actually marketing is a pretty high octane industry for people who um, are in it. It has a, a gl- glamorous, almost party uh, 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 image and the view of people in this article is that's actually not a myth it is actually uh, uh, fairly accurate is that right it is it is um, one of the things that was interesting that was said by Suki Thompson who's the CEO of Oyster Catchers is that you know we are sociable people but we don't take care of ourselves when doing it we're all out mm. having a laugh but what's that laugh hiding are we really you know burning the candle at both ends Um, I think we can all happily say that none of us is a a literal coalface, but every job does have its pressures. And we are in the business of communication. And one of the things that happens with communication is that people communicate with us endlessly. Yeah. People communicate without thinking. They send nasty emails. They send emails at three o'clock in the morning because they happen to be in a different time zone. It's the always on. And if you're a marketer, trying to create a 24-7 customer service organization, and I can't think of one that isn't anymore, because Twitter will be tweeting away in the middle of the night when you're not there, emails will be coming in, your operation will be up alive and working in Indonesia when um, Sao Paulo's asleep. It's just endless, and it's relentless, and that pressure, the buck has to stop somewhere. It's a fantastic piece, and I do. If people haven't read it, or our audience haven't yet read it, I I do commend it to them. And I think you know, CIM is a, uh, front and centre of this, uh, the mental health. And I think it's an important point that you were saying that it, you don't have to get to off the cliff edge of burnout before you um, uh, uh, do something uh, about this. So if any of our audience today have uh, great examples of what they've done in their organisation or their agency or on uh, the client side uh, to make sure that the minds are fresh and happy and we were able to deliver a great project, then do write to Morag um, at the magazine uh, and we'll pick up the theme down the line. I think Morag, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Thank you for having me, Ben. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Join us next time where we'll have a special guest from agency side who will be delving into the ups and downs of influencer marketing. CIM Podcast.